This week on Squats and Margaritas, it's Kim Votney, the Vagina Coach. That's right, the Vagina Coach. After having two babies, I've had some stress incontinence issues when I run, when I do a jumping jack, when I bounce in a bouncy house, and I found out that it's totally common. It's just that nobody talks about it. I have so many pelvic floor questions. I have all of your questions. If you cross your legs to sneeze, this is your episode. Here's Kim Botney, the Vagina Coach. It is so nice to meet you. Your Instagram drew me in, obviously, because you're a pelvic floor specialist. Um, I mentioned it in the intro. I had a lot of struggles with stress incontinence um, after having my babies. And we can get into my story, but I wanted you to first share yours and like everything that you've been through to get to this point uh, to where you're helping women after, every, I mean, incontinence, uterine prolapse, and rec. To sell. Yep. Yep. <laughs> Go through everything that your poor body has been through. Yeah. Um, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And I'm glad that you're, you're getting value. There's stuff I share that I think, oh my God, I can't believe I'm sharing this all over the internet, but it is helping people. So really at the end of the day, that's what I'm, I want to do. So yeah. uh, how it, how it started was uh, I could go all the way back to sixth grade. I remember watching uh, they showed us a childbirth video as part of our sex ed. And I remember thinking, oh my God, I'm never doing that. And, <laughs> um, but I went home and I looked at my mom and I said, okay, well, she did it. And my grandma's in it, you know, and I started to kind of have this fear slash fascination with birth and all growing up. I had, I was like adamant. No, I'm never having kids. I had a, I remember having a sticker and a photo album with like statements, bold statements, kind of like vision boards. I'm never having a baby. <laughs> wow. and, uh, yeah. So that changed. I, I met my husband and I decided I did want to start a family. And then I was really determined to now have a different story than my mom. So after that video, and as I was growing up, I would ask my mom and my mom was an OR nurse. She was very open with with my brother and I, which I am grateful for. Um, she said proper anatomical terms. She No question was off limits. And so I, I was asking, you know, saying, what is, what happened to you? How did babies come out of you? And she told me about episiotomies and then she did have incontinence and she did have um, chronic back pain and she had a tummy that wouldn't flatten. She had a hysterectomy, not from prolapse, but from heavy bleeding, which um, is also something that I've experienced. So I, I sort of looked at all these things that I really wanted to avoid and said, okay, what can I do? And I started to ask around, I was asking my midwives, you know, what can I do to prevent tearing and all this? And they said, I've heard of this thing called the Epino, which is a biofeedback device. And I said, okay, so I researched this, it's out of Germany and it, it's basically a balloon, a silicone balloon that's inserted into the vagina. It's attached to a gauge and it allows you to see when you're contracting and relaxing your pelvic floor. And it also near the, like the final few weeks of pregnancy, you also expand the balloon a little bit more each day and it, it provides pressure and stretch against the perineum. So if you've heard of perineal massage, it's, it's essentially doing that, but, um, not with your hands. Like it's difficult to kind of reach around and, and access your own <laughs> vagina with your fingers when you're pregnant. Right. <laughs> so, yeah, so that's how it started. So I, use, I bought one to use it, had a great experience. And at the time, my knowledge was incontinence and tearing. That's all I knew about. And I had not done any training in it. It was just, I was kind of going on my own 
whim of using this product, using midwives. I, ta- I learned a little bit about birth positions uh, that were more favorable. I ended up being in a sideline, which is one of the more favorable for protecting the perineum. And so I came out of there and I thought, okay, I had no tearing, uh, no external tearing, which later on I recognized that I had internal, but I had no external tearing. And I thought, oh my gosh, why is it that not every single person knows about this product? So I contacted the company and said, could I be a distributor? And it was meant to be just a side thing. And I would tell friends and my midwives could let people know that I sell them. That's how it started. And I did that for a few years. And then in 2009, I was laid off from my job. I worked in HR. I had worked in fitness before I'd got out of fitness. I was in HR. And so I got laid off from my HR job when the whole financial world fell apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, then I said, okay, well, here I've got this product and let's see if I can turn it into something more. And that's where the entrepreneurial thing. So that was 2009. And then, um, yeah, so I started selling that. I started an e-commerce store with all sorts of different pelvic health products. I met two other women. I was also looking at the abdominal wall and looking at the connection between the diastasis and pelvic floor. So I met two other women. We formed a second business called Bellies Inc. And we were trying to optimize postpartum recovery. And we manufactured our own wrap and put together an exercise program for that. And so I was kind of juggling the two companies for a while. In June of 20, sorry, in uh, October 2019, I actually bought my partners out and was amalgamating it into one business because we were all just done with multiple balls in the air. And uh, and then June of 2020, I actually sold the product side of that business. Health Canada, which is equivalent to the FDA, they implemented a new medical device licensing procedure that was way more costly, way more hoops to jump through. And so smaller manufacturers just said, forget it, we're not doing it. So they decided to leave Canada. So it wasn't from a safety, it wasn't because it wasn't good. It just was like they were done with all the bureaucracy and left. So when that happened, I just closed my e-commerce store. And then when Belly's Inc., when when I had that, I just said, okay, I'm going to sell the product side as well because I just had too much on, on my plate. And now here I am and I'm kind of back where I started, but just without the product. So I have online programs. I do online coaching for women in all stages of life, pregnancy through motherhood, through menopause, even people who've never been pregnant. And that's what I do. I mentioned it before with my first is when I learned about the pelvic floor and how you even talk about, you can train for a vaginal birth, like train your body. Like it was nothing was even, I I assumed that because I was fit. I was a college athlete. Like I equated labor to kind of like holding a plank, like mm-hmm. it's going to hurt, but it was like almost mind over matter. And I would just be able to do it. And I'm telling my husband, like, it's going to be fine. I, I probably won't get an epidural. I'm just like talking off. <laughs> I get in there, Kim. And first of all, the most excruciating, I think I was two centimeters and I was like laying down on the floor. And I know that everybody has different, um, pain tolerances and like working out wise, I can tolerate a lot, but it was such a miserable experience for me. I pushed for an hour and a half and was told I blew out my pelvic floor. And I was like, Mm. Oh, great. Because I'm sure now I wasn't pushing efficiently. I obviously hadn't trained to push and being an athlete, like after six weeks, it was like, no doctor, doctor cleared me. I'm going to work out. And this is how stupid I am. Like I didn't even realize I was peeing Kim. Like I didn't realize it was urine. I called my doctor and was like, I don't know if like my uterus is leaking because I had no (laughs) sensation of peeing. I would pee before I left for a run. 
I had not a full bladder. I didn't feel like I had to go. I didn't feel myself going. And I would come back and my pants were wet. And in my mind, I'm like, something is leaking. Like it's something from birth. Cause it had only been six weeks. Like maybe I'm running too fast. And she's like laughing. She's like, Erin, it's urine. Like you're peeing. And I was like, no, I don't even feel the sensation. And she's like, are you peeing when you're just walking around? And I was like, no, but when I run, it happens. And she's like, so there's a stressor it's stress incontinence. Like I want to ask you, first of all, how common is it? Do most women get that after a vaginal birth and how typically, how long does that last? Or can you expect to have that sort of issue? Will it pass? Or do you have to do exercises to kind of get your pelvic floor back? Or when you blow out your pelvic floor, as I was told, is that just like my situation now (laughs) because it's gone? Yeah. Okay. I've got, I've got a lot to say on there. So first of all, I, I'm, I get so frustrated with messages like that, that you quote unquote blew out your pelvic floor. Like the, the image that leaves with somebody and the belief it creates is ridiculous. Like let go of that. And, and then the other is it, when you say, how stupid am I? You're not stupid. You were never told you were never informed. It's not your fault. Um, and so there's a lot of people who just kind of go to and they're saying, well, you know, what, what have I done wrong? I must've failed. I must have la la la. Right. So I just wanted to make a comment on those. So statistically, stress urinary incontinence, there's different types of incontinence. Stress urinary incontinence is most common. And statistics would say probably somewhere between like, it's like mid 30-ish percent. Um, it kind of fluctuates in there. Now that's statistics. So that's reported cases. I, I truly believe that number is significantly higher because not everybody reports it. A lot of people assume that, you know, they're either ashamed, they're too embarrassed to ask. They think it's normal because they've had babies or they're normal because they're now menopause. So I think it's higher than that, but that's what the stats say. And after pregnancy, so, uh, sorry, after childbirth, actually, let me talk about that in pregnancy. It is, you are at an increased risk just by being pregnant Mm. and people who leak while they are pregnant are at a significantly higher risk of experiencing that on an ongoing basis. So people that experience it and address it are not, they reduce their risk, but people who experience it, but don't do anything about it are at an increased risk of prolonged incontinence. After birth in the first week, we can consider that it is normal to have some urine, to not have sensation. There has been some disruption to nerves. There's been this disruption to the tissue. There's a lot that has happened, inflammation, all sorts of things. So we would consider it in the first week or so to be normal. After that, it should start to subside to the point where we, we now go back to having continence, where we make the decision, we have the sensation, we make the decision if it's an appropriate time and we either choose to empty or not. Wow. And th- that's what can get disrupted. And w- with you know the six-week green light, I, I am constantly saying, I think that that is irresponsible, honestly. Like, I think that there is a immediate tissue healing that has happened at six weeks. And we could look at the incision and say, okay, everything's healing. Well, in terms of the actual, all the adaptations that have happened in pregnancy, all of the uh, tissue, everything that has been disrupted during birth, whether it's vaginal or cesarean, it needs a lot more help rather than just superficial tissue healing. We need some retraining. We need to remind the muscles what to do. Um, We need First of all, we need a recovery recovery is so overlooked in North America. So that's one missing piece. The other is the education with regards to retraining. So, um, so yes, we, every single person, even if you had no tearing, even if you had a, you know, you pushed for 30 minutes and it was the perfect quote unquote, perfect birth. 
or if you had a cesarean and nothing touched your pelvic floor, so to speak, Mm -hmm. you absolutely still need pelvic floor retraining in my opinion. And, um, and then just one other comment on there. So that's stress, urinary incontinence. That's where laugh, cough, sneeze, jump running, you know, whatever it creates a a rise in pressure and the muscles or the sphincters can't close off in time or strongly enough. Urge incontinence is also very common. And that is where people, um, will all of a sudden say, well, I'm fine until I put my key in the door at home, or I'm fine until I, start to drink a glass of water and there's some sort of a trigger and then they get this overwhelming urge and they can't make it to the bathroom in time. And sometimes it can be a full release of the bladder. Sometimes it can be just a bit of urine leaking out and you can have a combination of those two. You can also have anal incontinence. So there are people that, that can't control their gas or stool, which I'm sure you could appreciate would be very, very life altering. Um, so from labor, or just always like that as a sign, a symptom after having a child, this comes on or. Yeah. So it can happen. So all of these things can happen to people who have never been pregnant. It can happen to people who've never given birth. It is, and you are at an increased risk. If you have given, if you've been pregnant and if you've given birth and vaginal is an increased risk, cesarean does not make you immune. So that the higher rate of uh, anal incontinence, it's significantly lower and it's more likely in people who've had assisted so, uh, forceps or vacuum, especially forceps and people who've had a third or fourth, <clears throat> excuse me, a third or fourth degree tear, or who've had an episiotomy, um, that has basically extended into the anal sphincter. So those they're called obstetric anal sphincter injuries. Oasis is a, um, which I think is a strange way to think about that, but <laughs> right. that's the acronym. And we're missing like those people, every single person, every single woman, person who gives birth should be referred to a pelvic floor physical therapist, seeing them in pregnancy, seeing them postpartum, it should be standard of care, especially the people who have third and fourth degree tears. And we are, we are missing the mark there. So, so terribly. Nothing was told to me about it. The only reason I started looking into it was because it was getting in the way of running. Like I was running with the mm-hmm. diaper, Kim, like I would mm-hmm. find like a depends diaper and be like, I can't stop it. So I may as well just get a run in and then just throw the diaper away because it was right. so frustrating. And, um, like so subsequent delivery. So like I had my daughter and then three years later I had my son. Should you expect that it would be worse because you've done it again? Or is it, if it happens to you, it happens to you. Yeah. So statistically also the more children, the more births you have, your, your, uh, your, the rate of it, the likelihood of it happening increases. Um, so that's not to say that you can't, if you experience it, that you can't overcome it and reduce the risk of it happening again. But that's the missing link right now is that it's accepted as normal Mm -hmm. commercials on like the ads on TV tell us it's just part of being a woman. We are often dismissed by healthcare providers that, well, that's what happens after you have a baby. That's what happens when you get older and approach menopause, blah, blah, blah. So there's, there's an acceptance of it. And if we could again, shift it so that in once somebody becomes pregnant, even before that, I think we should be educating kids. Look, when I learned that childbirth video, what if I learned about the pelvic floor? What if I learned that because I'm a woman, I have this incredibly important group of muscles that men have too, but women are at an increased risk because we have menstrual cycles, because we have hormonal fluctuations, because we grow in birth babies um, and it requires extra attention. And here's a Kegel exercise. And here's the practitioner that you see once you become sexually active. You know, if we plant those seeds at a younger age, 
we would have people who were prepared and the conversation then would, would kind of be just like, we go to the dentist every year because yes. you go to the dentist. It's proactive. You don't go to the dentist. Once you have your cavity to have your cavity filled, you go to the dentist exactly. to make sure that you're not going to get a cavity, but no one looks at pelvic floor that way. I laugh about it every day. It's like, if you're about to sneeze, you cross your legs. Like that's just what you do because if you don't, you'll pee your pants. Everyone laughs at, like, it's just like a thing yet. Yeah, you have to cross your legs before you sneeze. Or I have like a traumatic memory of bouncing in the bouncy house with my daughter. And I was like, we have to go. And she's like, what's wrong? And I was like, mommy had an accident. Like, but at least that time I realized, I was like, oh my, I'm peeing. Like I, when I, after I had my baby, I couldn't even equate what was happening. Cause it, like you said, there was no sensation. I didn't yeah. have to go. My body was just going again, but I was reacting to the issue. I never proactively looked into it because it wasn't, it wasn't something that I thought would affect me. And it's also probably something that you didn't even really even think that could happen to you, right? Prep for labor. Again, in my mind, I got this. It's just going to be mind over matter. I could have taken the classes, but I was like, it's going to be a waste of time, but they probably would have taught me how to push more efficiently. You talk about that. You have a course where you train to give birth. Yep. Yep. And it, and it, and to that point, you are, you are the, the prime example with what you just said. So I started out working. So again, I had that product that I wanted to sell and I created this program called prepare to push. That was my first program. And I was trying to get this education in front of pregnant women and say, okay, here's the knowledge about the pelvic floor. Here's all the changes that are happening. Here's how you apply the principle of specificity to labor so that you're basically training for birth. Here's how you're optimizing your pushing. Here's how you recover. And it's a hard sell. It still remains a hard sell. It's getting a little easier now because word is getting out, but people like yourself are like, well, people have been giving birth for hundreds of thousands of years. I'm going to be fine. I'm fit. I'm going to be fine. It's not going to happen to me, blah, blah, blah. And they don't know. So then, and then afterwards, guess who my most popular customer is second and third time moms, because now they're like, oh, I really wish that I'd paid attention the first time. (laughs) Totally. And the one thing is it's weird. Like, actually it took me I had this problem for a strong six months after my daughter with my son. It wasn't as long. Like I recovered. I could go back to running without a diaper faster. And I didn't do any like Kegels or any kind of courses. Like I, my body just recovered more quickly with my son, but I don't, maybe I was just more careful. Like I just, whatever I had to do to not have that situation again and just get back to normal life. And I think like, being a first time mom, you're, there's so many other things to think about. Like the nursery and the, is a car seat in the right way? It just didn't seem like a good use of my time until I realized that it really sure as hell would have been. And it wouldn't be in diapers for six months. If I had put more of an emphasis on something that I truly didn't even consider that just wasn't one of the things until you're in it. It's not even something that I considered and it needs to be talked about more. And me saying I had the vagina coach. Everybody's like, what are you going to talk about? It's so like taboo <laughs> still. And I'm like, what am I not going to talk about? I had like two pages of notes. I had people texting me about where they called vaginal weights and like, all, and I'm like, yeah, good question. Like people have these questions. It's just, it needs to be in a forum like this. Like I'm not on Instagram live where you can like yeah. have a trusted person <laughs> that is, can inform you on it without making you feel like anxious about asking these questions. So yeah. I appreciate you being here again. <laughs> yeah, of course. Um, I also saw, so not only do you teach people to train for labor and how to push, um, did I see like right now I'm very focused on building my butt and lifting. And I saw that there's a, not just the benefit of having a muscular, butt. there's a pelvic health benefit to building your butt. Yes, 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 yes. Yeah. So our glutes, um, 
if you think about when we're pregnant, so you've been pregnant and uh, I've been pregnant twice. And I remember you, you, and, and, you know, your belly grows out in front of you. You have this sort of shifting center of gravity and unconsciously, like now, when I look back at photos of myself when I was pregnant, I, I absolutely adopted this. And I look, I see it in most pregnant women where you're kind of unconsciously starting to lean back and push your pelvis a little bit forward. Cause it's, yeah. it's heavy. Right. And it's this, we don't, we don't do it on purpose. We're just kind of naturally adapting yeah. because we don't, we don't, we aren't told the principles of posture and, and all this kind of stuff. So, um, so there's, that puts additional strain on the, uh, abdominal wall for one, but also what happens is our glutes actually become inhibited. So if you look at a lot of new moms, especially because in pregnancy, it's a little bit deceiving because we usually have a little bit more, um, we have a little bit more fat and padding on our butts and around our hips. And once, once we have kind of the new mom sort of in that three to six to nine month postpartum, if you look at their backsides, I know that sounds a little bit odd, but if you look, so many of them have very flat bums. Oh. They have very, they have, they have no longer have, uh, have glute muscles. Yeah. And I was exactly the same. I remember looking at this one picture and it was about, I'm going to say it's probably like eight or so, maybe six to eight months of post my first. And I looked at myself and I, and I kind of joked, I said, I birthed my butt off, you know, mm -hmm. and everybody says like, Oh, I worked my butt off. I, but I birthed my butt off. Cause I'm like, I have no bum. Yeah. I, I'm so, it was just like, there was nothing there holding up my pants and a lot it, that it's not because, you know, I just like all of a sudden lost muscle mass because I I've lost weight. It was because of the adaptation that happened. So my glute muscles had become inhibited and therefore aren't really working. And so when you watch a lot of, because of that kind of forward thrusted pelvis, and when you tuck your pelvis under, even if wherever you are right now, if you're listening, stand up and pretend you have a thousand dollar bill in your butt cheeks and sort of squeeze it, like clench it, okay. and then try to walk and try maybe to do a squat without letting go of that thousand dollar bill. And it's difficult. Your glutes aren't working to do that. Usually your glutes propel you forward. Usually your glutes are active and you, you kind of release them as you go down into squat and then come up. But if you're holding and you're clenching, which is what happens when we're in that posture, they can't work the way that they do. So we start to lose muscle mass. So another role. So we want to build that back up partly from posture, but also the glute muscles, they help keep our sacrum. So our triangular bone that's in between our, our hip bones and our pelvis and at the base of the sacrum is our tailbone, but that triangular bone of the sacrum, it has a little bit of movement. Like it's part of the SI joints. It doesn't have a whole huge amount, but right. The meat that's kind of on top of that is the glute muscles and they can help keep that sacrum mm -hmm. from kind of tucking underneath us. So the, the, the glutes and the pelvic floor really work, um, as part of a team. And also when we work our glutes, it, tensions the fascia called the thoracolumbar fascia that also helps heal the abdominal wall, helps with our low back. So the importance of glutes cannot be um, overstated. And uh, yes, so the more you build, it's always like I, I, every single program I have, there's a, a huge emphasis on glutes, squats, ridges, hip extensions, hip thrusts, all yeah. sorts of things. Your pelvic floor is working, but if you can add on the voluntary contraction, so basically adding yeah. on a Kegel to that, then you are getting even more benefit. So you yeah. basically, when you're, when you do that, I, I, when we were starting belly zinc and we were creating our exercise program, we wanted to highlight pelvic floor muscle activation. So a Kegel, but we, we 
everybody, most people have heard of the term Kegel exercise, but Kegels are, while people know what they are, they don't necessarily know how to do them. And so we wanted to change the name slightly just to kind of highlight that it's a part of the core and that it's, it's, uh, it works in synergy with our breath, our diaphragm. So we call it the core breath. So if you go to my YouTube channel, you'll find my core breath video, which is essentially a Kegel, but it's coordinated with the breath. And then when you take that and you add it to a movement, so the exhalation of your breath, when you exhale, that's when your pelvic floor contracts and lifts. A lot of people think that they should inhale and contract their pelvic floor. So you exhale, contract your pelvic floor. So when you do a say, let's say you're doing a hip thrust. Yep. So your, your hips are low down. You've got say a barbell across your hips yep. and you're ready to thrust up. You're going to inhale and expand. So you kind of I always say blossom your vulva, you relax your pelvic floor, and then you would exhale and you would engage the pelvic floor. Different cues are like pick up blueberries with your vagina, your anus, or think of sipping a smoothie through a straw with your vagina and then go into your hip thrust. So contract your pelvic floor first, then go up into your hip thrust. And then when you lower down, relax the pelvic floor again. So that is training. It's building in strength and endurance in the pelvic floor, but it's also working on the timing. If you remember back to when I was talking about stress or nearing continence, there's two components. There's a timing issue and there's a strength issue. Sometimes it's a combination of both, but when we lose that, the timing, when the pelvic floor is not reacting in time, it's not anticipating our movement. Mm -hmm. We need to retrain that. So we contract it just before we exert a force and that helps re repattern that anticipatory reaction. Even as you were describing it, I was trying to think about it and I was breathing at the wrong time. Like I, I, I would have thought the opposite. Yeah. So like most totally relax, and then as you're exhaling, then you keep yeah. Yeah. And I had to like, I don't know if this is weird. I did. I can't think of anything else. Like if I'm like thinking about doing a Kegel, like nothing, I can't, <laughs> anything. I feel like it takes so much mind power to like focus. I that I don't know if I could do a hip thrust. It, it, maybe I'm doing it wrong. If I have to put that much thought into it. I have no, to like, no. Okay. <laughs> totally, totally normal. And that's why also, so if we've been told Kegels, they're like, oh, do them at every red light or do them while you're brushing your teeth. And, and people are like, I can't multitask. I, like, I just, yeah. I'm like, then I stop doing whatever. Yes. Okay, I that's, that's fine. <laughs> I'm really focused on it and that's fine. Yeah, yeah um, totally fine. And then eventually you'll start to pattern it more and then you can start to add it to movement. How often are we supposed to be doing them? Well, here's the thing. So, um, if we look at research, research will say that, so people who have an existing problem looking to overcome a, a, a challenge, three sets of 10, 10 second holds done three times a day. I don't know very many people, especially new moms who are going to take three separate times throughout the day to do their Kegel exercise like that. No, it's not happening. So again, if we add it to movement, then, and, and when we're a new mom, we aren't always necessarily going to the, the gym either. But if you think about how much movement we have in a day as a mom, lifting laundry baskets, lifting and carrying a baby, putting a baby down, carrying a stroller, lifting a car, like we do a whole heck of a lot of movement, even though it's not quote unquote exercise, it's way more functional than a lot of people who sit at a desk all day and go to the gym for an hour. So we, we need to consider that. And if we add in the pelvic floor activation, so that exhale to engage and then lift. So let's say I'm picking up a laundry basket, exhale, pick up my blueberries, then yeah. pick up my laundry basket. I'm adding it back into my day that way. Functionally, yeah. you could also bring it into uh, an exercise, uh, sorry, into a, a workout. So I, I recommend that we do at least one, uh, one set of 10, like just kind of checking in. So whether it's first thing in the morning, lying in bed, just contracting and relaxing the pelvic floor, just to keep that mind body connection, just reminding the pelvic floor what yeah. it does. Um, and then incorporate it some sort 
somehow into your day, into a workout or into your activities of daily living. And then, you know, if you were to do that, I say every day, and it turns out to be about four to five times a week, right? And just like, like for 10 seconds is one. That's one way you can, you, like, it's important to train both the slow twitch and the fast twitch. So slow is where we would contract and then hold it for say five, 10 seconds or so. And then we also want to do, we want to try to practice like quick contract releases because those are the, the slow twitch, the holes, those are the ones that are helping us when we're walking around through the day, the quick ones are the ones that are going to react when we sneeze or when we, you know, react quick cough or something like that. We need them to react with that time. Right. So we want to train both. So I recommend for most people, if you can do a static set, um, you know, I say every day, and again, that usually translates to four to five times a week and incorporate them into your movement. And then I'm also a huge fan of another practice called hypopressives, which is really effective for prolapse. It's also really effective for incontinence as well. Thank you for that segue. Um, that's the next thing I want to talk to you about. My mom had uterine and rectocele. Make what you had. I didn't know it was the same thing. She ended up having a hysterectomy. First, I was going to ask you, is that something that is inherited? Like, could that be like, if she had it, am I more likely to have it? And she did have four kids, huge babies. All of us, like two of us were almost 10 pounds and she had four. So now I am so concerned about prolapse. I know you dealt with that. More squats and margaritas in a moment. Now this. For so long, I would just have a glass of wine or two before bed and I would fall asleep fine. But a couple hours later, I'd be wide awake. And that's because wine has sugar. Make the transition to tequila. Tequila has no sugar, no carbs. It's gluten free. And I just found a tequila that is additive free, a clean spirit called Inspiro Tequila that was developed by a woman. It's crafted by women and every step from developing the taste profile to getting it on the shelves. It's all women and they support other women. Right now they're giving my listeners 10% off at InspiroTequila.com with promo code Margaritas10. That's Margaritas and the number 10 at InspiroTequila.com. It's smooth. You can sip it on the rocks or in a skinny margarita. And right now you can get it for 10% off at InspiroTequila.com. Now back to squats and margaritas. Yeah. So there's the, the most common types of prolapse are bladder, uterine, and rectum. And so what, what essentially happens is the position, the anatomical position is displaced. It's displaced for some reason. It shifts out of its proper position and it starts to bulge into or descend into the vagina. So in the case of the bladder, it bulges into the anterior or the front wall of the vagina. In the case of the rectum, it bulges into the back or posterior wall of the vagina. In the case of the uterus, it descends from the top down into the vagina. And early stage prolapse is for many people asymptomatic. Um, Symptoms do not indicate severity. So some people have a very low grade and have crazy symptoms. And some people have a bulge right at the entrance of their vagina. And they're like, oh, I didn't even know it was there. So symptoms do not indicate severity. Um, It's more common than incontinence. So statistically, 80%, one in one in two women will have some degree of prolapse. And uh, again, those are reported cases. There's probably more than that, but, um, but that's statistically what we have super, super common. And again, nobody screens for it. Nobody talks about it. And it's often not until somebody feels or sees something that they think, 
oh my God, what is this? And it's scary. It's very scary for people. I don't know if I'm going to leave this in here, but I'm going to talk to you about it. Um, (laughs) I had to go to the ER because it felt like there was a tampon in there, but there wasn't. And I was like, the only way that I can describe it is like, I had to like bear down and I, it's like, I need to find, there's a tampon loss. Something felt like it was in there. And I could almost like see some, I ended up, I just called like my insurance uh, number that you talk to a nurse and she's asking all these things. Like I did feel nauseous. There were all these things that she was saying. And I was like, she made me go to the emergency room and it ended up, they actually found that I had an ovarian cyst, which I'm glad that I found out, but that had nothing to do with the prolapse. And I was just so concerned that because my mom had it, I'm calling her and she's like, yeah, I felt like something was in there, like a tampon or something. And I was like, I almost felt like I could see something, but they said that they saw no signs of prolapse. So I was going to ask you, how did you feel something yourself? Like in order to get, go and get checked out. And is it what I'm describing? Because I am concerned about this. Yeah. That is a super common sensation with prolapse is you feel like there's something in your vagina and early stage. Again, you might not be able to see a bulge, but you still might have a sensation of something. And the, the thing with it, it, it can be dependent on who checks you and the position you're checked in and the time of day. So Uh, a doctor will typically check you lying down on the treatment table. And there's a different presentation there than when you are upright standing. So the, the number one thing, if you take anything away from this call, from this podcast is to see a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year, like we see the dentist. So I talked to you about that earlier. That's our preventive health. See a pelvic floor physical therapist once a year to check in because they can then screen for early stage prolapse. And then when we catch it early, we are in a position to prevent it from getting worse for sure. And potentially maybe even reversing it bladder and uterine prolapse. I have seen many people reverse rectoceles, not so much, but, um, so, so common, common symptom is feeling like there's something in there. It could be discomfort with sex. It could be pain or difficulty inserting a tampon. It could be tampons getting pushed out. It could be um, because the pocket, so the bladder creates a little pocket when it, uh, from the bulge and the rectum creates a little pocket from the bulge. So you can have trapped stool or trapped urine. So sometimes you feel like you don't get everything out. Um, it sometimes, uh, bladder prolapse can sometimes cr- contribute to incontinence, but sometimes it can mask incontinence. So sometimes when the bulge is actually moved out of the way, th- then there's not as much pressure on the urethra. And then it, so it's, it, it can happen both ways there, but um, heavy sense of heaviness, feeling like something's going to fall out. Those are all common symptoms. And does it come and go? Is it something it that it's it there? Okay. Because it's not there all the time. And yes. I, I was like, if it's happening, it's happening, it's there. But if you, if it can come and go, then I definitely feel like I am experiencing something. It can totally come and go. It can depend okay. on, uh, stress levels. It can depend on hormones. So where you are in your cycle, it could depend on your bowel movement that day. It could depend on how much sleep you've had, like all sorts of things can contribute and influence our symptoms, yeah. which makes it a, a flipping roller coaster. Like the mental health aspect of especially prolapse is really, really tough mm-hmm. um, because you can have good days and you can have absolutely terrible days and you're just, and, and, for a lot of people in there, they, again, they're scared. Some people think it's cancer because they say, I see, uh, it looks like a, a tumor almost. And so it's, it's really mentally challenging for, for so many people. And it's, that's why we have to get screened every single year, at least once a year. And can you share your story? Maybe a year, two years, I forget exactly after the birth of my second, mm-hmm. 
um, there was two instances. I had one where I was in an exercise class doing jumping jacks and I was like, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and this is before I knew about pelvic floor physical therapy or anything that I know now. Um, so I knew something was off shortly after I learned about pelvic floor physio, started to learn all this. And then I was able to overcome that. Uh, I also had a, an experience. This is more just a, um, it's called overflow incontinence. And this is where it can happen to people who can't make it like physically are unable to get up and move towards a bathroom. So maybe some part of their mobility is hampered. So I was sitting by a pool and had been drinking tons and tons of water. And when I was lying down, I was, you know, I didn't really sense it. And then when I stood up all of a sudden, again, it kind of repositions. And all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, I really have to go to the bathroom. And, and it was that, that trigger thing where I was, as I got closer to home, yeah. Uh, we were actually at a resort. So it was like our hotel room. Um, we, I was like, oh my gosh. My, and I just like, I stood outside the door. Thankfully it was outside. And I just, my whole bladder just let go because it was like, woohoo, we're getting close to home. And I just yeah. couldn't control it. And, and yeah. it was just overflowing because I just couldn't, it, it was like, there was too much in there and I couldn't hold anymore. So yeah. that's what I've experienced from an incontinence prolapse perspective. Um, again, this is probably, I'm going to say 12 ish years ago. I, I, I kind of lose track of time now, but 12 years ago ish, I had no symptoms. I knew what prolapse was, had no symptoms. I was having sex with my husband and all of a sudden, like, this is, you know, it's TMI, but nothing's really TMI in my world. He was oh. thrusting in and all of a sudden it was like, Oh, like it felt like he, it, he hit something. And I was like, Oh, that hurt. And I said, did you feel something? He says, yeah. He goes, I feel like I hit something. And so, and I had been seeing a physio and I, you know, I had, I see her once a year. And so I hadn't been for probably six or eight months. And I said, okay, well, I'm going to go now anyway. And I went and saw her and she's like, yeah, your uterus is about a stage two prolapse. And I was like, what the hell? And you felt um, before that he found it. Like you didn't feel that. Yeah. Yeah. yeah totally. I didn't have any symptoms. Yeah. And when I look back, so that was around the time I was starting like if I look back, I, I have an autoimmune condition called Hashimoto's, which is a thyroid issue. And I was starting to experience other weird symptoms. Like I was starting to get constipated. So I was starting to, to, I was straining when I was going to the bathroom. So I'm sure that was a huge contributor to it anyway. So found that, um, I was able to reverse that with hypopressives in the meantime, like along the same times, my, my physio says like, you have a very early rectocele, which is the posterior wall of my vagina. She said, yeah, I can just feel a little bit of a bulge. So if you remember the beginning, when I was talking about my birth story, I had no external tearing, yeah. but I had a lot of scar tissue internally. And again, this is something that we don't even consider that there's still, even though we haven't had perineal tearing outside that needs to be stitched up, we can have all sorts of tissue injury inside. And so I had a bunch of scar tissue right around where this little bulge was. And now, so I knew I had it, but I was also now then struggling with constipation. And so that is also a, a major contributor to, I, I'm sure it was an exacer, uh, a reason that it exacerbated my rectocele. So I lived with it. I'm sure it actually started back when I gave birth, but I didn't have any symptoms until, um, you know, a couple of years ish after my uterine prolapse and, uh, my uterine prolapse was fine, but now I was starting to get an exacerbation of this and, lived with that symptomatically trying absolutely everything. So I was like, okay, I reversed a, a uterine prolapse. Maybe I can do the same here. And I did, I did everything I possibly could. And, um, and then it, within that period of time, found out I have an uh, autoimmune condition, totally changed my diet, changed a whole bunch of things, got all of that under control. But then, and so for a while, there was about a year and a half ish that I didn't really have a lot of symptoms. And I thought, okay, here we go. It was all diet related. I'm fine. And then as I started to creep up on menopause, 
the symptoms started to come back uh, again. And it was just, it got to the point I said, you know what, I'm tired of this. I'm tired of it interfering with the quality of my life. And I've tried absolutely everything I can. And then I had surgery. A year ago? Almost exactly a year. Like it's a year and a, a week ago. Yeah. Now, not, like you're great. Like there's no, it's, it's, it's corrected. The surgery corrects yes. it. Yeah. So the surgery corrects the anatomy. And the thing that I want to stress about the about surgery, and this is whether it's surgery for incontinence or, um, and I'm going to come back to your mom, surgery for uh, prolapse, it fixes the, it does, the, it does its best to fix the anatomy and it will usually address the symptom that has been bothersome. It will not, I repeat, it will not change the function of your muscles. It will not fix constipation. It will not, like there's people go into surgery because it could potentially be a quote unquote quick fix. Yeah. I don't, then I won't have to do exercises anymore. Then I won't have to do that. I won't be bothered. If anything, you, you have to do it more. It's yeah. more important for you to do exercise after you've had surgery. Weight loss. That, people are like, I'll just have weight loss surgery. And then yes. like, if you don't work out maybe even harder, that's not an overall fix. Exactly. Exactly. So I feel really strongly, I think a, a, a major contributor to why there is a high recurrence rate with pelvic surgeries is because things like constipation are not addressed. Things like a, a return to gradual return to fitness are not addressed. Right. Um, so yeah, so that's kind of a, a little sidebar there, but um, with your mom, with the uterine prolapse, having a hysterectomy is often presented as an option and it could absolutely be the best option for that person. But I urge people also to consider, um, have all the conservative methods been approached first? And it couldn't depend on the stage of the prolapse. If it's, you know, early or if it's quite an advanced stage, there are suspension surgeries. There's also, there is a hysterectomy. Um, but there's other, there's other, things that you have an increased risk of after a hysterectomy, you are at an increased risk of incontinence. You are at an increased risk of other types of prolapse. It changes the landscape by taking out the uterus. So you're trying to address a prolapse, but you're also at an increased risk of another type of prolapse and not that is often not shared with people. Um, and hypopressives is a technique that I, I have used myself. I have helped hundreds of clients at least improve, if not completely reduce their prolapse. And now I, I stress also bladder and uterine rectoceles are tricky. Um, unless you catch it very, very early on, it's difficult to completely reverse a rectoceal, not to say that you can't manage it, but, um, bladder and uterine, I've had people with stage three. So bulge right at the entrance to their vagina, who've got back to, um, I haven't had anybody reverse completely reverse a stage three, but they've got to a stage one. They wear a pessary when they lift heavy things. Wow. hardly have any symptoms. So, so those are things that I would want people to, to know our options and then they can choose. That's the thing. I don't feel like there's enough information shared for people to make the best choice for their body. Would you say like, if you've had one type of prolapse, because just because you and my mom both had rectocele and uh, uterine, like, should you assume that another, if something is in prolapse, that there's going to be something else? Or is that, is it not even, it's not, it's, I wouldn't say it's a, it's not really a predictor. Like it's common to have both for sure. Um, it, there is a genetic component. Um, but there, again, there's so much we can do to minimize that risk daily pelvic floor exercise, see a pelvic floor physio every year, do your hypopressis. Like 
um, avoid constipation. That's what I want to talk to you about too. Any other tips you have for that? Cause I never thought about constipation being related. Cause if you're straining to go to the bathroom, like you're throwing off other things and hurting yourself. Yeah. Constipation is super common. There's like the, the, the more automated our world becomes, we don't move as much. That's one thing. We also don't have the same, um, soil that we used to. So we have less nutritious food. We eat more processed food. There's lots of reasons diet wise, why, uh, we have higher rates of constipation and, um, and then there's also, again, it's, it's like, you know, it's the convenience foods, it's the distraction, it's not paying attention, not knowing all these things, how we can support our gut health. And now like gut health is so huge now. It's like, a, it, it's, tr- it, it's trendy, I guess I'll say, but it's not a trend. It's something super, super important. Yep. And, um, so what I have learned over, you know, my experience dealing with, I had never, ever in my life I was the most regular person in town. And it wasn't until all of a sudden I had this autoimmune, which I didn't know I had for probably I was close to about eight or nine years uh, that I was like, what the heck is going on? I, I eat healthy. I move, I drink water. I do all these things and I I couldn't understand. So, so thyroid can be a contributor to constipation. So if you are a healthful leader, if you drink lots of water, if you eat lots of fiber and you're still something's off, I would get your hormones checked and I would get your thyroid and not through a doctor, through a naturopath or a functional medicine doctor who oh. will assess the full thyroid panel with the antibodies and who will do a full, um, my favorite for hormones is the Dutch test. Don't have to do that, but I find the medical system, their, their ranges of what's considered optimal is bigger. And they also at least this is my experience in Canada, they will often reject a request for a test because they don't think it's indicated. So usually they will wait until there is some problem. Oh, now we'll test it just to make sure, but they won't do it preventively. And um, so we have to pay out of pocket. uh, And and I'm, I invest, that's one of my number, my, my first priority is my health. So I will invest in my health and I will pay to get the tests that will help me understand. Um, But those are, so those are two things. I would look at hormones and I would look at, um, uh, thyroid function that includes the antibodies. Okay. Um, not just at your physical every year, like your blood panel that they do every year. It's like, yes. Usually it's like TSH. Yeah. Yeah. And then maybe like a T3, they might, you know, or T4, but you need TSH, T3, T4, reverse T3, TPO, which is an antibody and TGAB. Those are the five that we need. And then on a hormone side, we need to understand the ratio between estrogen and progesterone. We would want to see what our cortisol levels are doing. Um, And ideally, if we could see how we're also metabolizing hormones. So that's a whole other conversation, but those can play a role in constipation. The other is our diet and our movement. And um, I found that even though I was drinking what I thought was a lot of water, it really, once I increased it, it made a big difference. So I drink three liters at least a day. (laughs) <laughs> so three to four liters a day of water and people who have incontinence, what does that make them do? Oh my God. They're like, I, no way. People who are, are dealing with urgency or stress or incontinence will often stop drinking because they think that they won't now that I won't leak or now I won't have an urge. And what happens is the urine gets more concentrated and they actually contributes to more urges. Plus they get dehydrated and other constipated and they're creating more issues with their pelvic floor. So drink three to four liters of water okay. fiber wise for women, the um, like on average, people are getting kind of 15 ish to 20. It should be, this is for women around, we should be getting around 35 ish grams of fiber per day. And so if you could space, it depends how often you eat, but if you're eating a three meal, it should be around 10 to 15, 
um, grams per meal that you have. Flax seeds and chia seeds are two of the easiest ways to increase your fiber intake by sprinkling them on a couple of, you know, salad, or I put them on toast sometimes or put them in my smoothies. Yeah. Super, super easy. And then we have to also, uh, leafy greens, celery, uh, um, dates, apples with the skin on raspberries, avocado, uh, what else have I said there? Those are like oatmeal oats. Those are, those are high fiber foods, beans, and you want to balance between soluble and insoluble. So soluble is the kind that absorbs water and insoluble is the kind that just kind of creates a bit of, uh, like it just passes you through. So leafy greens are the insoluble, uh, oats would be a soluble. They, and chia seeds would be a soluble. So you need to balance between the two. And you also want to make sure that you, you, you have a variety of foods. We have to feed the bacteria in our gut. And we do that by not eating the same thing. And a lot of people who deal with prolapse, I was also one of these people. When you have, when you have prolapse and when you know the diet is, uh, creates some t- symptoms for you, once you've kind of like, okay, I had a good day. What did I eat yesterday? I'm going to eat the same thing all the time. And you start to limit your yeah. intake. Um, and that can, again, wreak havoc on the gut as well. You're making me think of my kids because they eat the same things. Like, will not try anything else. And I noticed you didn't list bananas on that list. Will you just, I, some people are like, my son is always constipated. It's like, give him a banana. And then some people's like, don't give him a banana. Like, I've heard the opposite. Like, it'll either make you constipated or it'll make you go to the bathroom. Bananas are a prebiotic fiber. So they're, they, they can feed the gut and they can help, but they can be constipating. So you would want to make sure that, um, that you have like nuts can be helpful. So kids sometimes will have, have, uh, like it depends if they have an allergy, but nuts can, can be helpful, but chia seeds are an easy thing. If, if your kids have any sort of a smoothie or a yogurt or cereal, yeah. chia seeds are really easy to sprinkle in that they don't really notice. We need the chicken nuggets that have vegetables in them where this is where I'm at. Like the pasta that has protein, like, or pasta that is veggies. Like they yes, have, yes. they're getting pasta and chicken nuggets because that's the only way they won't even try it. And that makes sense because my son is so constipated and he eats like two bananas a day. It's all he wants. But I mean, he would take it over like a chocolate bar. He'd be like, can I have another banana? So I'm like, Oh, and then my mother-in-law's like, give him a banana. It'll help him go to the bathroom. I'm like, I don't really know about that because yeah. he always has a problem. We talked about, you went through, it was like Kegels, constipation, posture and alignment, I, everything I want to talk to you about. The only thing is I got the question about vaginal weights, vaginal beads. Why would, why would I want that? What will that do for me? 50 shades of gray made Lila <laughs> balls very popular and they can be a great tool for some people. The challenge is people who are experiencing heaviness, prolapse, feel weak in their pelvic floor, experiencing incontinence, they they interpret that the reason is because they have laxity, that they have low tone. But people can have overactivity. They can have tightness that contributes to weakness. So when you have let me explain it this way. If you have um let's here's my arm and when my arm is hanging down at my straight down at my side. That's my normal resting length for my arm. If I bend my elbow part way so that my, my arm's kind of at a 90 degree angle. Now I'm I've, I've used up part of my range of motion. I've used up part of the available force that I have in that group of muscles. And if I was to walk around with it held in that position all day, it would get tired and achy and sore. And then if I was called upon to do a bit like, to lift something with my arm, it'd be like, Oh, I've been doing this all day. Okay. You know what I mean? 
So if we are in that tucked pelvis position that we talked about that people usually adopt in pregnancy, if I sit a lot, especially with a tucked under pelvis, if I feel like I'm going to leak urine or if I'm trying to be guarded because I think something's going to fall out of me, I'm going to have these, these muscles that are, they're on high alert and they're non-relaxing. So then when I laugh or cough or sneeze and the muscles are needing to react to that, their timing is going to be off and their force potential is already partially used up. So they don't react. They can't get there in time and they can't close the openings off with enough force. Does that make sense? Yes. That makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. So if then that person who is, if somebody has an overactive, so it's also called a hypertonic pelvic floor, or they might have been told your pelvic floor is too tight. um, If they were to start using Kegel weights, now we're introducing a, a load that they need to grip and hang on to. I'm going, going to kind of promote more overactivity. Yeah. And you don't need it. it works against you. So it exactly. depends on the person, but you do, you're yes. right. You just assume everybody it's like, would you lax? Like exactly, laxity. Yeah. that's what laxity. That's what you assume is the issue, but it's yes. not for everybody. So that is yeah. not something that every, if it is laxity, then make, they would help you. To, it's just, you walk around holding, holding them in potentially. Yes. So uh, two more points I want to make before you invest in Kegel weights, okay. invest in a pelvic floor physical therapist. If you have access to one, put your money there first, it will tell you so much about your body. You will learn what you need to focus on with regards to Kegel exercises. It'll change your life. So put your money there first. If it's indicated that uh, vaginal weights might help you putting like, sometimes people say, Oh, put them in and just walk around and do your laundry. But that's not necessarily training the pelvic floor in the way that we need it to. We don't, we don't want the pelvic floor to constantly be just holding on to something. I like, there's ones that are, it's called the Kegel bell where it's, you insert the kind of the egg portion into the vagina, but the, the tag is actually outside of the body and it has the weight outside and it kind of moves a little. So it's a little bit more dynamic. You can contract and lift it. Um, You can also do like, you could just be lying in an incline and put a weight in and do some Kegels with it. So, so use it in a short term. Um, Don't put it in and and walk around for, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes and try to get your work done. I don't, I don't believe that's the, the most optimal way. And then just one more quick note on that. There's the Yoni eggs. And those are stones and crystals that are shaped similar to some of the vaginal weights. And they're very porous and they can lead to infection. So I was thinking really, really, I would say, be very cautious. I prefer the silicone, uh, intimate rose is a fantastic brand. Kegel bell secret whispers. Those are all really good brands of Kegel weights. If you are interested in trying, but again, put your money to pelvic floor physical therapy first, and then determine if that's going to help you or not. Okay. And just to wrap it up with what is your most bang for your buck, uh, pelvic floor tip. I always come back to pelvic floor physical therapy. Um, but I would say, because I've said that enough through here, um, <laughs> if I was to say one thing, I'm sounds lame, sounds kind of boring, but do your pelvic floor exercise. Pelvic floor exercise works. Um, it's proven to help with stress urine incontinence. It's proven to make a difference with pro- prolapse symptoms and do it coordinated with movement. So my, that's my whole, I call it my buff muff approach. You coordinate pelvic floor exercise into movement. I have a whole app that teaches you how to do that. And, um, that's what my number one tip would be. Cause we, we, 
we spend so much time exercising all other parts of our body, you know, and we go after the glamour muscles. Like we want to make you have the six pack or we want to have the biceps or, you know, whatever, but we need that inside. It's the foundation of our core. We need that inside and Kegels are a core exercise. So if you want a stronger core, if you want a flatter midsection Kegels, do your Kegels. Yeah. And I know a lot of women that wouldn't skip their workout. So, but you skip Kegel, yes. whatever. So if you look at it like that, or you do it as part of your workout, like you said, yes. that's when you, yes. all, then you won't miss it. Like make it a part of that. So it's not another thing to add to your calendar. Cause it all goes together. Yeah. Where do we get your app? In the app store. Yeah. Apple and Android. It's called the Buff Muff app and uh, it's free to download. There's a bunch of free content and there's paid if you choose to, to want more. Um, but it gives you a lot of really good educational tips and, and some exercises to do. And your book? My book, Your Pelvic Floor. Yeah. It's, oh. um, it's uh, Watkins Publishing. It's available on Amazon, um, most major retailers, some in store as well. And uh, yeah, that's, that was Kate that came out in March and And my website's vaginacoach.com. Thank you so much for listening to the Squats and Margaritas podcast. If you haven't subscribed, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts so you never miss an episode. And I'll see you next week for a brand new episode of Squats and Margaritas. To be your best every day, you need proven quality sleep every night. Science proves your best sleep is vital to your mental, emotional, and physical health. And that's where the Sleep Number Bed comes in. And let me tell you, ever since I've had it, my Sleep IQ score is just going higher and higher. And did you know 8 out of 10 couples say that one of them sleeps too hot or too cold? Science tells us regulating your sleep temperature leads to higher quality sleep. For many couples, temperature struggles are a real challenge. So here are some tips to help you both sleep just right. Look for beds designed with temperature benefits such as the new Sleep Number Climate 360 Smart Bed that actively warms and cools each side so you both sleep blissfully comfortable. And now save 40% on the Sleep Number 360 Special Edition Smart Bed. Plus, special financing for a limited time. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com slash podcast one. Sleep Number, the official sleep and wellness partner of the National Football League. Subject to credit approval, minimum monthly payments required. See sleepnumber.com for details.